Circle K is America's thirst stop. And Dave's, especially when Dave needs refreshments for family movie night. So Dave heads straight to Circle K, where he grabs icy Polar Pop cups and frosters for the kids and chilled beer for the grown-ups. Enjoy family movie night, Dave. We'll be here for you all summer long. And right now at Circle K, score with 28-ounce Gatorade. Any flavor, three for $5. So make us your first stop. Circle K, America's thirst stop. Good morning, I'm your host David, aka Baba, and this is Thy Daily Edge. A fresh twist on the morning brief where I share my views on everything from recent news and current affairs to popular culture and personal finance. Hope you enjoy the show. I was listening to a talk recently about why poor people often make poor decisions quote-unquote, for those listening on the podcast. The point is that statistically, poor people do make poorer life choices from a societal perspective in terms of, you know, poor people statistically will be more likely to borrow more, to exercise less, to make less healthy food choices, to drink more, smoke more, save less. And Margaret Thatcher once famously referred to poverty as a personality defect. Now, you will have to bear with me. My point here isn't to blame poor people for being in the position they are. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's to show and highlight how easily it is to fall into that trap and what it is within society, within the benefit system, within the constructs of everything we define and understand and often take for granted that keeps people in those positions. So there was an interesting study in India where data scientists looked at sugarcane farmers. And what's interesting about them is that the harvest is at a particular time of year. So what that means for them is that there are times of year where they are very poor. And then there are times of year immediately after the harvest where they're actually very well off. And they made the sugarcane farmers take IQ tests before and after the harvest. And what they discovered was that the sugarcane farmers performed far worse on IQ tests before the harvest than they did afterwards. And by extrapolating this data, we've come to understand that poverty can affect IQ by as much as 14 points. And that is not an insignificant number. Now, beyond all that, there's the scarcity effect. And what that means is that essentially, when you're lacking so many things all the time, all of your decisions become short-term oriented. You don't have to think about what you're going to eat a month from now if you can't find what to eat today. And so all of your actions now have to be geared towards satisfying only your most immediate short-term needs. Whatever debt, whatever obligation, whatever has the shortest time horizon then becomes your most immediate goal. That becomes your greatest focus. And so when I talk about poverty, this isn't just homeless people or people that kind of we stereotypically think about at, as being at the bottom end of any kind of scale. These things can happen to anyone. And that was highlighted to me very recently. So I have a credit card, which I pay off monthly. And, and for clarity, I have five credit cards that I've used for about five years, and I've never in my life paid a penny of credit card interest. Ever. Never ever. 
So by that barometer, I would take it as a fair assumption that I'm relatively decent at managing my money. Um, so I had a credit card bill looming. I think it was a Friday. The bill was meant to be on Tuesday, like when the money would come out of my account. So I usually have a direct debit. So my money comes out automatically and I don't have to think about it too much. But what I do have to think about is actually making sure that I have the right amount of money in my account. Um, and so it was kind of looming over my head. I wanted to get rid of it. So I decided to pay it off early. So I paid it off on the Friday. For some reason, it didn't go through until the Saturday. But then come Tuesday, the bank still took the money out of my account. But obviously, I didn't have the money anymore. I'd already used the money to pay off the card. So it bounced. And when it bounced, I was charged £12 on the credit card. Now, obviously, I was in a position to call them again and explain the situation. They agreed to waive it, blah, blah, blah. But what if I wasn't? Because not only did I get charged £12 on the credit card, I also got charged £5 on my current account. And that £5 took that account into overdraft because I only used that account for the purpose of paying off debt. So I transfer the exact amount I need to spend into that account and then that amount goes to pay my credit cards. Um, so that additional £5 charge took that account into overdraft. And I got charged £12 for that. So somehow within the course of a week, I now have £27 of random bank fees. For no reason, all because I actually tried to pay my bill on time or early. So now imagine I was someone who lived paycheck to paycheck, who didn't have £30 allocated in my budget for random fees I shouldn't have been paying because all I was doing was paying my actual bills. And so suddenly that £30 I haven't accounted for begins to collect interest and it begins to snowball. The £5 that was an overdraft charge for an unarranged overdraft, I've seen overdraft fees up to £50 a month. And so suddenly I'm in a position hypothetically where within a few months I can be £300 or more in debt all because of not even a mistake. Like I paid my bill early, but because I think on their system, you, if you want to pay early, you have to pay more than four days early. But because my payment didn't come out until the Saturday, it was only, what's that, like three, three days or so. Um, so again, just a clerical mishap could result over the course of a few months in hundreds of pounds of debt. And imagine if you had other debts, suddenly you have to decide which debts you're paying first, which debts are more important, which debts have the highest rate of interest. And so suddenly this is where the scarcity effect comes in, because now I'm thinking, what are my most immediate goals? What are the most immediate things that I need to pay? Which obligations are most important for me to satisfy? But realistically, that's just one of many examples. Within the system, there are any number of punitive charges and reprimands for seemingly innocuous things where you get charged ridiculous amounts of money simply for not having enough money to pay the original bills that you had. Or in my instance, you're getting charged because you paid the bills too early. And so suddenly you have mountains of debt. Suddenly you're stuck in a very precarious position. And I've heard stories of 
single mums going to interviews and getting huge fines because they had to leave their kids in the car because they couldn't afford childcare. And so this, again, just illustrates how all of these different factors continue to mount up. And how do you get out of that? You know, an easy solution that many will offer is simply just get a new job, get a better job that pays more. But that's not easy. And it's also not free because the first step is to get ID. Because the surprising truth is passports aren't free. Driving licenses aren't free. And so once you've got your ID and your papers in order, you then need to write a CV, which takes time, which could take money. You need to print it. You need clothes and shoes to wear to interviews. You need any number of compounding things to move from one situation to the other. And so you're applying to all these jobs. Then you actually need the time to attend interviews. And if you already had a job, that simply just wasn't paying enough, how do you get enough time off to actually, one, apply, two, attend interviews, two, get a better paying role? And so you can't do that. So you can't move to another job, a better job. And so you're stuck in the one that you have, which doesn't pay enough to fulfill your current obligations. And so the debt that you have continues to snowball. So let's consider something called Maslow's hierarchy of needs. This is a theory by Abraham Maslow, about the levels of needs that we have as human beings. And according to Maslow, there are five levels. So right at the bottom, level one is psychological. Second level, going upwards, is safety. And then love, and then esteem, and then self-actualization. Those are the five levels. And these are the levels of needs that we have as human beings. And part of this theory dictates that The higher needs in the hierarchy only begin to emerge once people feel that they've sufficiently satisfied the previous level. But then you have to remember that that very first level, which is labelled psychological but actually includes things like water, food, shelter, sleep and clothing, what happens when there are millions of people that don't even rise above that very first level? Because remember that the point of this theory is that the the next level of needs only emerges once you've, or at least once you feel as though you have fulfilled the previous level. And so by those rules, actually, you're just stuck at the bottom. You don't need to worry about your safety needs or your emotional needs, love, self-actualization, any of that, because all of your time, your energy, your finances goes towards servicing your basic psychological needs. So one solution that's been picking up a lot of speed in recent years, and particularly with Andrew Yang, who is now running for the 2020 election in the US, is universal basic income. And it's a really interesting idea, I must admit. And I think it's an idea that I really do agree with in principle. And I think it is a great idea, but my main concern is its practicality. My main concern is, based on the evidence that we have so far, how much can we guarantee that one, it actually works, two, that it's useful, and three, that it's sustainable continually for society. But I think there's one thing to keep at the back of your mind, even while we're discussing or looking into that. And that is, well, I guess two things regarding our government. It's one, how effective are the current government solutions? And two, how much do they actually cost? So what I mean by that is for all the money that we're already putting into the system, how much of that is having an effect and 
how much money do we have to put into the system for each kind of incremental level of progress that we see? Because the point is that actually, it may not matter at all whether or not UBI works, because so long as it's marginally less inefficient than what we currently have, maybe it's a good idea after all, or at least maybe it's worth implementing in the first instance. In the US, for example, they have 13 different assistance programs, which are administered by eight different agencies, and all of them run completely independently. But you have to track and manage all of these different programs, as well as actually servicing your basic psychological needs. And so this is what I mean when I say that a lot of these things are self-reinforcing. So actually, in the US, in my view at least, realistically, can it get any worse? Like genuinely, is it possible? Because you're forcing the the poorest people in, in society into a position where they have to spend time tracking up to 13 different programs, all while actually just trying to eat and provide for their families day to day. So what is UBI? It's universal basic income. Essentially, you're putting money into the pockets of the people with no questions asked. And in principle, I think that's a great idea. I do think that in principle, that can go a tremendous way. Because to pass Andrew Yang's plan, $1,000 per person, I mean, that $1,000 means far more to people on the lower end of that scale than to the people that already have a substantial amount. And so from that perspective, actually, even though nominally you're giving people the exact same amount, it means far more to people that have a lot less. And that's a net positive. But obviously, if you're not asking questions about how people spend the money and there's no requirements in that regard, that then raises a lot of questions about how is the money spent? Will it be spent wisely? Will it be spent in a way that is efficient and benefits the economy as a whole? And there have been studies on this. So studies in Canada have shown that only 1% of people stopped working and working hours overall only decreased by about 10%. And the majority of those people were actually using the additional time that they had to study and to improve themselves and, and progress in other areas. So it wasn't money lost to a lack of productivity. In fact, on the whole, it was actually very good for the societies in which it was implemented. But what about the costs? That's another big question. You can only prevent inflation if you recoup the funds from elsewhere. Otherwise, the cost of everything just increases, because if the amount of money that everyone has increases, but the amount of output, the amount of services and goods provided remains stable, then actually the cost of everything will just increase by the same proportional amount. So how do you fund it? Do you completely cut welfare instead, which is what Andrew Yang's planning to do? Do you tax the wealthy? Um, something interesting, actually, that I was reading recently was explaining that generally, in fact, increasing taxes on the wealthiest people doesn't necessarily correlate to an increase in revenue generated. Because actually, changing the tax rate just changes or influences how people interact with the economy. And if you want any more information on any of that or anything else that I'll discuss, just check the newsletter at diedailyedge.substack.com. So anyway, I think the biggest issue for me with UBI right now is the evidence for its success. And it's not necessarily that it's lacking, it's the substance of it. So people that are big proponents of UBI will often cite that it's been tested in 14 different countries, and that's true, but in only three of those 14 tests was the money given unconditional. 
and only two of those tests actually had more than a thousand people. So this becomes a problem, because realistically and practically, you can't extrapolate data from a study with less than a thousand people to economies with tens if not hundreds of millions. The next problem for me is that universal money isn't really universal. Because costs differ in different parts of the city, some issues will only be compounded. And the existing studies don't show the results of implementing these policies on different subsections of the economy. Because different subgroups of an economy, once you introduce variety, once you introduce racial variety, age variety, gender variety, different groups of people have different needs, they face different issues, particularly geographically. Once you have a wide geographic spread, you know, if you're, even in London, if you're comparing kind of central London to East London, for example, the costs will differ. Even in the same stores, in the same supermarkets, the pricings are different. The rent is different. And so you have a situation where wealth inequality can actually increase because the poorest people just get pushed further and further out of the major cities because those with more resources already will have greater purchasing power than them even within their own neighbourhoods. So issues like gentrification only continue to propagate. That gets so much worse because the people that already had the resources now have even more to spend in lower income areas. And beyond that, the effect is worse in ageing economies, like the UK and like America. In fact, ironically, I I brought this up recently in discussions to do with uh, how to solve food poverty. But actually, we are living longer and longer. And as much as that sounds like a great and a fantastic thing due to scientific progress and achievement, actually, if we are not adequately prepared economically, that can have quite disastrous consequences. Because... The proportion of the population that will be above the age of 65 will double between 2018 and 2060. So what does that mean for pensions? What does that mean for the retirement age? Because if everyone's living for longer, that doesn't necessarily mean you can work for longer. And so actually, as much as the wealth of scientific innovation that we have is is fantastic and it's great and it's going really well, we really do have to think about what the economic impact of these changes are, because we're entering a position that in human history we haven't been in before. We've reached a rate of progress where for every year of scientific innovation, we add three months to our lives. So what does that mean for even millennials or Gen Z right now? By the time they reach retirement age, retirement age, it would be pushed to what, like 120? It It would need to be pushed to a ridiculous amount. But the issue is that even though you get older, you can't work much longer beyond that. And so there's a dichotomy. And what it means is that actually the proportion of time that you are receiving a state pension for gets longer and longer. And state pensions are funded by the taxpayer. And so hopefully you can see where the conundrum lies, because as we live for longer, the proportion of your lifetime that you spend funding into the taxpayer system gets shorter and shorter, but yet you're living longer and longer. And so actually, Assuming we're only recouping this money in the form of taxes, the only way to keep it going is to increase taxes more and more. And so once you add UBI on top of that, realistically what happens is that the bulk of that burden just shifts to younger people. And so if UBI is not financially stable, 
either at implementation or even a decade or two past that, a lot of the negative repercussions will only be felt by the next generation. And at that point, if we haven't planned it out well, it could very well be too late. But like I said, I I genuinely do think UBI is a great idea, but we just need more tests, more data to come up with a system that genuinely works for everyone, particularly in the long term. Because for now, a lot of the most popular ideas kind of surrounding universal social benefits as a whole are geared towards moving everyone towards a so-called Nordic model. And the Nordic countries have gained a well-earned, to be fair, a well-earned reputation for being societies with a high level of care and a wide safety net for all of their citizens. But for me, this is also where the problems begin, because most of the poster children for so-called fair economies are societies with some of the most homogenous demographics. And this is always where ethnic minorities fall through the gap. So in all of those countries, the bulk of the population is white, Lutheran and middle class. And and this is an issue particularly when it comes to race. Nordic countries do take immigrants, but the majority of them are from other Western countries. As an example, in the US, one in four people is a non-Western migrant. And and that's including black people, Mexican people, uh, Latin Americans, people with all of those backgrounds. That's including them. Um, So that adds up to one in four. In Denmark, it's four in 100. I'll give you a moment to let that sink in. But the point is, there's a huge dichotomy in terms of what's going to work when one in every four people comes from a non-Western background with a different value system to a society where 96 out of every 100 people are white and Western. And people that kind of push the idea of moving towards these Nordic models, they always pull out these random studies. Like there's one, the UN Happiness Report, and, and people quote this a lot. And I don't really get why, because as much as, yes, the UN Happiness Reports do show that people living in Nordic countries uh, reports of like genuinely higher levels of happiness than people in other countries. And what they fail to report is that the same numbers in the same study show that ethnic minorities in those Nordic countries experience less happiness than their counterparts. And in fact, actually, like if you break down the, the very same data in that same happiness report, the level of happiness reported within those Nordic countries literally breaks down by how much you correlate to the mean. So the happiest people there are the most devoutly religious, the most middle-aged, the most middle-class. And so the happiness rating isn't wholly representative. And it doesn't fit in with the other statistics we have either. And this is why I say that we have to really be careful with kind of what values and what yardsticks we choose to put on a pedestal because different subgroups of the economy kind of fly under the radar. Even women, that's another great example. So in Nordic and other highly egalitarian countries where you would assume there was a lot more impetus placed on personal choice, um, once you break things down and you look at the workforce demographics, you find that far often men gravitate towards STEM fields and women gravitate towards fields like healthcare and nursing. And so actually, The workplace in a lot of these Nordic countries is far more skewed based on gender than the US or the UK or or any number of Western nations. 
And then outside work, if you look at, there was a study I remember reading, which was, I think it was during like International Women's Month or something. And it was looking at the number of women reporting physical and sexual violence since the age of 15. And actually, you find that there's a, a, a much higher incidence of all of those in Nordic countries, which doesn't fit with our perception of what it's supposed to be like. But in Denmark, it was 52%. In Finland, it's 47%. In Sweden, it's 48%, which is nuts. And that's far higher than a lot of comparable European countries. And then you look at young people as another subsection of the economy. Young people in these Nordic countries suffer just as much, if not slightly more, with mental health and things like that. In fact, actually, um, those same five countries, so Iceland, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Finland, they make up almost half of the top 12 countries for antidepressant use. And so you have this strange dichotomy where some of the so-called happiest countries in the world are also the countries taking the most antidepressants. And actually, if you take the US out of that, because I think the US was second, Iceland is clear, like, woo! I think in Iceland, it's 106 people per thousand. And in Italy, for example, it's 50 per thousand. So that just shows you that it's, it's literally double the rate of other European countries. But going back to the idea of universal healthcare and benefits, there's also a really interesting dichotomy regarding taxation. And this kind of goes back to the issue that I brought up earlier with regards to, you know, how the cost for all these things are actually serviced. So in the Nordic countries, yes, they have a high standard of universal care and benefits, which is great, which is fantastic. But to fund this, you need higher taxes. And that's okay, because the majority of people there have a similar socioeconomic makeup. They have a similar value system, because they are highly homogenous. But the real problem is, what comes next? So Taxation is high to fund a number of universal benefits. Great. Having a high number of universal benefits results in a higher standard of living. Even better. But then, because the average cost of living is so high, the average Nordic family has two to three times more debt than the average American one. And a key distinction here is that we're talking about debt as a proportion of income. And people in Nordic countries already have higher incomes than people in the US. So I think in my mind, when you consider all of these externalities, all these other factors, it's less a question of will UBI work? And it's more, when it does work, is it sustainable? In terms of whether it will work, honestly, we don't know because it hasn't been tested on a large enough scale with a sufficiently diverse group of people. So if UBI works perfectly and everyone spends their money wisely, and they save, and we avoid inflation by recouping the money in taxes, if everyone's standard of living is higher, and the cost of living, particularly in big cities, increases, what happens to the average low-income family, when their incomes are higher but their debt triples? What happens to those ethnic minorities who are often masked by these overbroad statistics? And that's the bigger question for me, and, and that's one that still needs answering. Will it just be the same issue that Britain kind of now has with the NHS, but replicated on a far wider scale. Something that sounds amazing for the first few decades until the debt piles up and then the wheels start creaking. And how do you fund the shortfall? By raising taxes. The issue is that unless you fund the shortfall with money from outside of the system, the money won't circulate forever. 
And so Andrew Yang's plan for UBI actually does address this, because instead of taxing everyone, he only wants to tax tech companies. And these are companies that innovate to create fresh wealth. And that sounds great, but again, will it work forever? Because taxing tech will eventually stifle domestic innovation. And ironically, do you know where else has stifled domestic innovation? The Nordic countries. So in 1970, Sweden was 25% richer than the average OECD, so the average economically developed country. But growth stagnated, and in the next 20 years, all the other countries basically caught up. Not quite, but mostly. In fact, at the height of the dot-com bubble, when everyone was rushing to innovate and fund new startups, in Sweden, only one of the 50 biggest Swedish companies had been founded after 1970. And so even at a time in world history when countries around the world, particularly in the Western world at least, were rushing to innovate and and fund these thriving new startups, Sweden was at a standstill, largely because it had used a lot of the money to fund these social programs. In fact, because of the high taxes in Sweden, most of their biggest innovators simply fled the country. That's business leaders, writers, film directors... Even the founders of IKEA left, or IKEA, sorry. But, I mean, even that is is quite startling, that one of Sweden's most recognisable exports that you see in in countries across the world, IKEA, IKEA, whatever it's called, um, even their founders left Sweden because of how much they have to pay in tax. I remember laughing when I was reading about um, Astrid Lindgren, who's one of Sweden's most famous authors, and she ended up having to pay over 100% in marginal income tax. Do you know how ridiculous that is? I mean, I won't get into it, but if you want more information, it'll be in the description. So as the world moves into this tech-centric economy, questions like this become more and more important. On one hand, the revenues that large companies generate will continue to grow the amount of jobs they provide will continue to dwindle because now more and more robots and AI and and supercomputers can do a lot of that work. And that's really unfortunate. I think part of Andrew Yang's reasoning is the fact that there are a huge number of truck drivers in the United States who will effectively be displaced once we get automated driving to a level where those trucks can just drive themselves in their own lane and arrive at their destination safely. So how do we cater for the people within our economies who are displaced by technological innovation? How do we cater for the poorest people within our society without penalising them simply for existing? But how do we do all of that in a way that is, one, efficient in the present term, because it needs to work for now, but also efficient in the long term, because it needs to work for the future? Because we can't just bundle up all of this debt and pass it on to future generations, particularly when we already know that the problem we have with ageing populations is only going to get worse. Because the amount of time that people are paying taxes, the amount of time people are paying into the system, will decrease relative to the amount of time that we live for. So we're going to need to spend more and more time caring for older and older people, and less and less time actually earning the money. So, for the large part, I do think that Andrew Yang and many of his contemporaries are onto something, because I guess it does make sense from a societal perspective that 
the companies that are responsible, one, for driving innovation and creating new sources of income, and two, for actually displacing a large number of our labour force within the next 20 to 40 years, it's fair to say that perhaps it is incumbent upon them, as a side effect of their growth, to have to pay to help us as a society transition from where we are now to where we are going. And so I think that's fair, but I definitely think it's something that policymakers will need to consider carefully, because we can't continue to have this laissez-faire attitude to spending and to government debt, and particularly government-funded programs. Because I'm not saying it needs to work forever, but it needs to work long enough to bring the poorest among us out of the situations they're currently in, and create a level of parity. And ideally, we need to do that before the poorest among us are also displaced from the jobs they do have and replaced with AI. That's all for today. Thanks for tuning in. Please don't forget to rate, to review and subscribe. It really helps the podcast. And if you have any comments or rebuttals, feel free to get at me on Twitter at DieDailyEdge or at JustCallMeBaba. Founders Brewing Company has found a way to make an IPA you can enjoy anytime that's perfect for any occasion with their all-day IPA. At 4.7 ABV, you can still taste the hops, of course, but it's the complex array of malts and grains that make all-day IPA a beer that will grab your attention. That full flavor and low ABV is what continues to make it a staple in my fridge. Look for Founders in your favorite beer store or check out their full line of beer at foundersbrewing.com. Founders Brewing Company, born and brewed in Michigan since 1997. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi Advanced Security protects your connected devices, helps you avoid sketchy sites, and sends real-time alerts so you're in the know. Learn more at cox.com pano. Restrictions apply. Copyright 2020 Cox Communications, Inc. All rights reserved.